Hello and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Mary Agnes Carey of Kaiser Health News, and I'm sitting in for my colleague, Julie Rovner, who's off this week. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping just after 10 a.m. on Thursday, August 17th, and with all news in Washington, things can change fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we're joined by Sarah Carlin-Smith of Politico. Hi, how's it going? Great, thanks. Thanks for being here. Margo Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hello. Hey there. And my Kaiser Health News colleague, Julie Appleby. Hello. We've got a bit of news to start with this morning. Late yesterday, the Trump administration announced that for the month of August, it would continue to fund the Affordable Care Act's cost-sharing subsidies. And we remember these are the payments that help millions of low-income enrollees pay their out-of-pocket costs like their co-pays and their deductibles. And while that's welcome news for insurers, it does not stop that lingering uncertainty for many of these companies that have to decide soon if they'll participate in the marketplaces next year. And also earlier this week, the Congressional Budget Office weighed in on what would happen to premiums if those subsidies went away permanently. So Julie, could you start us off a little bit here with the highlights of the CBO report and what it means for insurers and beneficiaries? Sure. As you mentioned, you know, this report came out in the middle of all this discussion about what would happen if these payments were reduced or cut off and would it cause great market upset and that type of thing. The CBO report, interestingly enough, found that there would be winners and losers. So Let's just make sure we understand here. These are these subsidy payments, as you mentioned, that help lower the deductibles and other co-payments that people buying certain plans get. And about three of five people who buy their own plan through this marketplace actually get these subsidies, and they're paid directly to the insurers. So what the CBO found out was in the loser category, um, premiums would rise about 20% for these silver-level plans. And as a result, the federal budget deficit would go up by $194 billion over a decade. Can, so, I, can I just jump in? Yeah, so yeah. I was trying to figure out, I'm sort of a numerate, so I'm always trying to figure out when I see these budget numbers, like how big is $194 billion? So I started looking at things in the federal budget, and $194 billion is more than the total cost, than double the total cost of the Head Start program, just for some reference. Wow. wow. And that's a lot. That's a lot. And that, that would be obviously a big concern for folks who are worried about the budget deficit, that this would actually make it go up. And it makes it go up because the premiums, a different type of subsidy, there's a subsidy that helped people buy their plans and pay their premiums. Those are calculated based on the cost of these silver level plans. So if the silver level plans go up, the subsidies for the premiums have to go up. So that's why the budget deficit starts to go up. Um, other sort of short-term losers, the, some folks would lose their coverage because insurers might pull out of some counties, but they say that would actually fix itself over time. So what are, what are the winners in this? Um, again, these, these premium subsidies would go up, so some folks would actually have more money to buy their plan, and they might buy a gold-level plan, which covers more things, which has lower deductibles generally. So people might switch into the gold-level plans. And... Um, so or, or they might be able to get a bronze plan. Or for they free. might be able to get a bronze, right. bronze plan for free, not pay any premiums. But those come with high deductibles, so they might not want that. So, so there's a real mixed bag here. And one of the interesting caveats is that this might not work out as thought if some of these things don't come true. So the CBO assumed that states would encourage insurers to load all the additional premium costs onto these silver level plans, but they might not. 
That, so that could actually change the assumptions in this. And they also assume that uh, Congress would act fairly soon or the administration would act fairly soon to decide if they're going to keep paying these in 2018. And that may also not happen. So there's a number of different caveats. And other folks may want to jump in and chat about this report. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the most interesting things about this CBO report to me is that it said that there would be some negative consequences, and I think the biggest one is for the federal deficit, and there would be some short-term turmoil in the market. So for people who want to buy insurance next year, there would be people who would be disadvantaged because some insurers would leave. But what CBO basically said is in the long run, this change could be absorbed, that insurers would essentially continue to participate in the market, that consumers would – a lot of consumers with subsidies would end up actually having their subsidy buy more health insurance plans. And the CBO found in the long run that they thought that the uninsured rate would go down just a little bit, you know, kind of – you know, it's mostly noise. But they thought overall, like, probably more people would be covered, more people would have cheaper premiums because of the way that the subsidies scale, and insurers would want to continue to participate in the market. So I think a lot of the coverage of the CSR issue, and I, I think I'm as guilty of this as anyone, has focused on it as this, like, calamitous, disruptive thing if they went away. And I think what CBO showed is that there really are ways that insurance regulators and insurers can kind of hack around this problem. It's not going to happen overnight, but they will be able to kind of make it work for consumers without this funding. So I think that to some degree undermines the leverage that uh, President Trump has when he says, you know, I'm going to take this away and make Obamacare fail, and that's going to initiate, you know, more legislative compromise. I think what the CBO said is, like, actually, like, maybe this could be an okay scenario. And it was surprising. It was sort of like the soft landing scenario that nobody was really expecting. And we saw um, last week also that uh, CMS put out a pretty, like, wonky regulation about the risk programs for the Affordable Care Act. And they essentially sent a pretty strong signal to insurance regulators and to the health plans that they should pursue a strategy that's similar to what CBO thought that they would pursue, that they basically changed the risk formula to encourage and to make it easier for uh, health plans to load all the extra cost onto this particular category of plans. So you see, even as the president is talking about taking away the CSRs as a way of, of sort of sowing chaos in the insurance market, that his Department of Health and Human Services is already trying to backstop that and make it work better. Sure. Sarah, could you take us through a little bit what this means for the Republican Party, this CBO report? Because we had a split, of course, when it was announced. We had some House conservatives basically criticizing the White House for continuing the payments and, of course, getting another jab in at their Senate Republican colleagues for not passing a repeal and replace bill. And we've got Lamar Alexander, who heads the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. We know that Patty Murray, who's the ranking Democrat, wants to work with him on a stabilization bill. What does this mean for when Congress returns this sort of split the the party has? Does it mean anything for congressional action? I think it'll be interesting to watch because we do know that Senator Lamar Alexander has expressed a lot of interest in working with um, his Democratic colleagues on coming up with some ACA fix. And it seems like that would also probably include some Republican desired priorities, like giving states more flexibility to kind of manage Obamacare plans. But we also know, particularly on the House side, there are a lot of Republicans that still do not believe they need to pay these cost-sharing subsidies. And there's lawsuits going on over this, if I'm correct, and um, that Republicans do not want the government to represent. So I think it'll be interesting to see because at least on the Senate side, we know there's some movement towards, you know, coming up with a compromise, getting away from repeal, <laughs> repeal, repeal. But the House would also have to get on board as well. Sure. And will Democrats 
jump on a plan to stabilize the markets and address some ACA issues, or would they uh, somehow use this Republican disarray over the bill for a political advantage in another way? My impression is at this point, Democrats are willing to come to the table because they once they feel like Republicans have pretty much given up on repeal and replace, they're willing to compromise. They know that there are changes and fixes that need to be made to help their constituents as well. So I think a lot of Democrats have are pretty clear that the ACA is not perfect. It's, you know, there are tweaks they would like as well. They just don't want to smash it apart. I was thinking about the CBO report in terms of the kind of good news and bad news and and kind of how it fits with the goals of Republicans and Democrats. So if you think about the way that Republicans were selling their repeal and replace plans, the talking points that they most often used were this plan is going to lower average insurance premiums and it's going to lower the federal deficit. That was sort of the good news in their plans. And what CBO says is that getting rid of the cost sharing reductions would increase average premiums, increase the federal deficit. If you think about the goals that Democrats have, they want to make sure that coverage is as broad as possible. I think they're a little bit less concerned about the averages as long as people can access insurance. And I think they're a little bit less concerned in general about the deficit. So, you know, the CBO essentially like handed the Democrats, I think, just a tiny bit of leverage in saying, you know, actually, this policy change helps you achieve the goals that you have laid out as being important to you. Great. So we should hit a couple of other points on this before we move on to other topics. Uh, The number of Bear Counties has dropped. Now we're down to two, one in Ohio and one in Wisconsin. And again, a Bear County is one where an insurer has not yet come in to say they're going to sell health insurance on the exchanges. So those two counties represent about 381 folks who right now don't have options. But there's also another issue out there about these counties with one insurer. What does that mean for enrollment this fall and Uh, what might insurers do in response before open enrollment begins November 1st? If you measure it against the rhetoric of the crafters of the Affordable Care Act, this feels like a little bit of a failure. I think there was a lot of hope that by creating this new policy structure, there was going to be this kind of vibrant, robust, competitive marketplace where where, where consumers were going to have lots of choice. There was going to be new startups. There was, you know... And I, I think, you know, the President Obama talked about it as being like an, like a, you know, travelocity or right. something, right? That it was just going to be like this place you were going to go and there were going to be just all of these choices. I mean, that dream has not come to pass. Like there are a lot of places where there really are not a lot of choices. You may have the choice of a bunch of different plans offered by the same carrier. So you may be able to say, like, I want this deductible and copayment and premium and whatever. But... Uh, you know, generally people are not able to choose among different carriers in certain parts of the country. But I think some context is helpful here. My colleagues, uh, Reed Abelson and Hayen Park, did a study, did a story a few months ago where they looked at what was consumer choice like before the Affordable Care Act. And essentially what they found is that there were a lot of parts of the country where, you know, if you took out carriers that were, you know, selling to like 50 or a couple hundred people that were really in the market, there were a lot of parts of the country that really only had one carrier before. And what we're seeing is sort of a little bit of a regression to the mean. It seems like there are some parts of the country that are just not particularly conducive to a a robust competitive insurance market. And I think that's not great for consumers. I think it's better for consumers for there to be competition. It helps with price. It gives the the companies some incentive to be good on care and on customer service. But I do think the Bear County problem is like an existential problem. If people cannot purchase insurance, if they can't use their subsidies to buy insurance in their local market, then that is a real policy failure. If the market exists, but it's not that competitive, I think that is not optimal, but it's not awesome. And 
you know, I was speaking with some economists about this recently. A lot of the places that have just one carrier are rural markets. And, you know, he pointed this thing out to me, which, you know, it seems so obvious in retrospect. But he said, you know, when you move to a rural area, you're actually foregoing consumer choice in a lot of parts of your life. You know, there's probably only one school in your area. There's probably only one hospital in your area. But also, like, there's probably only one grocery store in your area. And you might have to drive pretty far to get to that grocery store. People who choose to live in rural areas, by and large, are choosing to have fewer choices in the marketplace in their local area. And that may just turn out to be true for health insurance, too. In some areas, though, <clears throat> we're also seeing it in, in- cities like Knoxville um, is down to one insurer and they had to really work to get that that insurer in there. That is a very interesting change because as you mentioned beforehand uh, before the ACA rural areas were often only served by one carrier. So now we've got some metro areas where there's only one carrier and I think for consumers what this means is your network might be more limited. You might not get to go to the doctor or hospital that you had previously gone to with this new carrier. And that's that's going to be a problem. I think it's we're going to see some effect in enrollment, right? People are going to say, you know, I don't like this choice. I'm not going to sign up at all, it, possibly. Well, will the additional three weeks that insurers just got a couple of days ago, I think now they have until September the 5th to say whether they're going to be in the market or not, is that going to make a difference in the Bear counties, in these counties with just one insurer or not so much? I think we're unlikely to see a lot of new entrants, with the exception of the Bear counties, where I think the insurance regulators are really kind of trying to twist arms and just fill those holes. But I think we might see some changes in the premiums. And of course, there's always a possibility that we see more exits in these next few weeks. Sure. I know my colleague has actually talked to the Wisconsin um, office working on this, and they do expect their Bear County to be covered. But it seems like if insurers are kind of worried about some of the instability and in what's going on with Obamacare because of the threats from the Trump administration and some of the payments and so forth, they've been doing making a lot of their decisions on a month-to-month, unpredictable basis. So a few more weeks, I don't think, is going to give them any more assurance or stability and we in still, making their decision. Right. We still don't know what's going to happen with the subsidies in September, right? Right. We don't know. They, they may not decide until after they get back. And will they be able to decide just in the first few days of September to give these insurers the, you know, certainty they need about the cost reduction to subsidies before they've got to submit their final rates. It's, it's unclear. It's unlikely. So while we don't know what Congress may or may not do on these issues when they come back in the fall, we do know before uh, the Senate left on its August break, it passed a law allowing people who are facing life-threatening diseases to get access to unapproved experimental drugs. Sarah, can you explain this law known as right to try, or I think you might call it right to ask? Yeah, some people do call it right to ask or sort of right to hope. Um, but basically, these this idea of right to try has come from a wave of state laws. More more than 37 states, well, 37 states at this point do have a right to try law, and a number of other states have them pending. But it basically allows patients who have been unable to get into a clinical trial or have sort of no other options left for medical treatment or are facing a life-threatening illness to request access to drugs that have passed the very first phases of human studies. And um, it takes FDA out of the process. So normally, if you wanted to get what is kind of conventionally known as compassionate use, the FDA would have to sign off and kind of look at it and say, okay, this person wants this drug. Um, Is this safe? Is the dosing okay? And this kind of just skirts the FDA. But why a lot of people say it's right to ask or right to hope is because we actually know that FDA approves pretty much 99% of requests that make it to its door. What actually seems to be the stumbling block is a lot of times companies say no to patients that they don't want to provide the drug. 
And they have a lot of legitimate reasons for that. Companies actually tend to have a difficult time filling their clinical trials. They also, and they also just need to spend a lot of resources and money and time on that effort and the manufacturing of the drug for that. So it can be hard for them to say yes to every person that thinks their drug may help them for their condition, when sometimes there may not actually even be science on that for that condition. So the law just doesn't, you know, it sounds really good on paper, but it's unclear what impact it's going to have because we know in the state laws, there's really very little evidence it's made any difference for patients. I want to say this has been around for a while, that I've heard about this before, too. It's come up in Congress and not passed, I think, due to safety concerns, some of which maybe you just touched on. Yeah, I mean, and looking back on this, I mean, it's not a completely new idea, even probably back five or 10 years. It seems like something that's cyclical, but um, the Goldwater Institute, this libertarian institute out in California, has had a ton of success um, going through this state-by-state effort, I think, and building momentum. And... What's interesting is now we have Vice President Mike Pence is a really big champion of it, um, and as because sort of of the connection, I think Donald Trump. They did actually one of the interesting things because we know how um, partisan the ACA debate has been. They actually worked together um, in the Senate and kind of fixed what was Senator Ron Johnson's initial bill, and um, I shouldn't say fixed; they tweaked it a lot um, to make Democrats, I think, more comfortable with it. So. They removed provisions that would have prevented FDA from seeing any information about how patients and right-to-try drugs fare. And that was concerning for FDA and patient safety advocates because they're saying, well, patient X could die in you know, North Carolina from getting this experimental drug. And doctor, your doctor in New York may want to use it. And they're going to have no idea that somebody else in the same condition was seriously hurt. And then they also did some other tweaks so that patients can no longer be charged significant amounts for these products. Um, they'd have some right, legal rights to sue if there were problems. So they did try and kind of f- fix the process on the patient safety side. And what do you think is going to happen in the House? I think there's a good shot if Speaker Ryan is interested in taking it up that it'll pass. And there are two big champions in the House. Um, Andy Biggs is probably the biggest proponent there. And so we and we and they don't need any Democratic support in the House. Oh, and it's a very votes. popular yeah. idea among Democrats. But in the states, I mean, these laws have passed with almost every legislature voting for a Democrat and Republican. Sometimes Democrats have introduced it. So even though sometimes right to try is seen as a Republican libertarian idea, it has gotten bipartisan support. In the Senate, it passed unanimous consent. So that means that nobody objected. So everybody is therefore for it, I guess. All right. This this uh, whole debate makes me think a lot about clinical trials and the way that we feel about them. So I feel like scientists love randomized controlled trials where, you know, you take a population of people and you give some of them a drug or some other kind of treatment and you give the other group a placebo or, or an alternate treatment and kind of it's if you randomize people into getting it and not getting it, it's sort of the gold standard for evaluating whether or not the thing works. Uh, but Patients don't like that. You know, if you're someone with a life-threatening illness and you think that there's a drug that could have promise for your condition, you don't necessarily want to be in a clinical trial. Like, you want to just get the drug. Or, you know, a lot of cases you do. You know, you don't want to necessarily be in the placebo arm and help science but not get the potential benefit. And, you know... I think that's part of this debate, but we're also seeing it a little bit in the Medicare payment space. So 
uh, the Obama administration had launched these uh, experiments where some part in some parts of the country, doctors were going to get paid one way for doing knee, knee and hip replacements. And in other parts of the country, they were just going to do it the normal way. And they wanted to sort of test and see if this other kind of payment would lower costs and improve uh, patient outcomes. And the Trump administration basically just largely rolled that experiment back and said, we don't like these kinds of experiments that are mandatory on you know, doctors and hospitals. We don't think this is a good way to study the effectiveness of health policy interventions. And I think it's in, in some ways the same tension of you know people who are part of the experiment don't necessarily want to be part right, of the experiment. Right, but then how do you know if it really works at the end of the day if you don't have the control group? That's and I think the, the thing with the right concern. to try that's really important is I've looked at the data and I've seen so many, I've covered in the past so many clinical trials and the drug process from start to finish. And so for about every 100 drugs that go into phase one trials, most of them will make it out. But that's just testing the drug in very, very small populations, maybe even healthy people, like a dozen healthy people just to get the dosing right. So that you're not really getting safety or effectiveness data. If you look at that number, so maybe 90 make it out, maybe 10 of those go on to actually be approved by FDA, where FDA is saying it's effective for its use and it is at least its effectiveness is worth the safety risks because we know no drugs are safe. So I think oftentimes people just have this tendency to cling to what's new and exciting. And oftentimes what's new and exciting is not necessarily the best thing or we don't know if it works yet. And I think the other thing with clinical trials, too, is sometimes people assume they're going to be on a placebo or no treatment. And for a lot of diseases where we have reasonably successful products today, you'd at least be on kind of the standard of care or what is the best available option. And sometimes that is fairly decent, you know, so it's tricky. Well, we're on the topic of drugs. Let's go to a little bit. Uh, I'd like to talk about prescription drug prices and controlling the cost of prescription drugs. We hear so much from President Trump and Hill lawmakers, frankly, people in both parties, talking about controlling the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, there's a presidential executive order on drug prices. I think we saw an early uh, version of it in June. It's supposed to come back and also possibly take some steps that may or may not work. But I just want to pick your brains about if you think there's anything at the federal or the state level that really gets to the heart of this issue that could be effective. Uh, maybe we start first on the federal level. We've got stuff on drug importation, drug pricing, giving notification, letting Medicare negotiate drug prices. Who wants to jump in on this? You know, all these things have been out there. They're sort of evergreens, right? The drug importation, that type of thing. I, I don't see a lot of those passing this year. I think we might see some efforts and already have seen some efforts to speed generics to market, to try to cut the backlog, to make that happen faster, to get some generics on the market sooner. But I don't know. What, what are you all seeing? I, I don't think we're going to see. I don't think see... at the federal level yeah. there's a lot of appetite for much action. I mean, the importation idea seems to have, it's certainly got Democratic support and probably has enough Republican support. You can maybe get it passed. But importation, I think, is one of those things like it might sound good and it may help some people. But I think CBO put out a score actually on one of the most recent importation bills a couple weeks ago, and it would save a couple billion over 10 years, which is sounds good to average people, but a couple billion over 10 years when you're talking about drug prices in this situation is probably not going to be felt by most people. The other thing with federal government is with the executive order is they've really kind of moved in a very pharma friendly <laughs> direction. So they've they proposed a lot of things that will maybe tweak 
what somebody pays and their out-of-pocket costs a little bit or maybe get some more generics, but they're not really coming up with any ideas that are going to save the overall government system a lot of money, that are going to save insurers money on drug costs, um, and nothing that's really going to tackle the prices of new brand drugs, which is really where you get those really high-priced drugs and just you get somebody with cancer who's looking at, you know, 20 percent copay, which is thousands of dollars for a tr- one treatment. And right now we price things just based on what the market will bear. And some of the harder things to get at, why are prices so high? Why do we pay on average double the amount per person in the United States on drugs than they do in other industrialized countries? And it's for a number of reasons, one of which is we have this patent protection that allows drug makers to have exclusivity and a monopoly for many years after they increase uh, introduce a product and get it approved. And that's to reward them for the cost of, of developing it and getting it through the process that we were just talking about, the testing, all that type of stuff. But it's a long time, and that allows them a monopoly before generics can come on. We also have some limits on what especially government payers, can do to limit which drugs people get. So you you can have a formulary and you can pit one drug maker against another and say, well, we'll put you on our formulary, but you got to lower the price. And that's a list but of approved drugs, A list right? of approved formulary. drugs yeah. that, that people can get. But for the most part, government programs can't do that. So they're a little bit more limited in trying to drive those kind of bargains. And, and this country has been very opposed to any kind of price setting or price control. So those are the big ticket items, and, and those aren't on the table right now for the most part. I think you have to think about the advantages and disadvantages of our drug pricing system. So, you know, drug prices in the United States are extremely expensive, and there are not a lot of levers that policymakers really hold in order to hold them down. On the other hand, we do have quite a lot of investment in and research and development and drug development right now. And we have a lot of new technologies that come on the market, and many of them do benefit human health. And you know, you have to think about these things in balance. If there was a policy that would effectively kind of push down the ability of drug makers to charge high prices for their products, that would reduce the profitability of the drug making sector. And, you know, as Sarah said, there are a lot of failures in this business. It's kind of a risky business. And I think the reason why a lot of people put money, invest money in drug development is because they know they're going to have a lot of failures, but they feel like, well, when I hit when I hit the big time, I'm going to be able to really uh, reap a lot of rewards and bring money back to my shareholders and investors. And so, you know, I think we always have to think about this issue as kind of a balancing act. If you push down too much on prices, then probably we're going to end up with like less new stuff. If we have like no control at all on prices, then patients are going to be priced out of the market and you're going to have this unsustainable system. And I think that's part of why the kinds of solutions that are often proposed, both at the federal and state level, are kind of nibbling around the edges. I think there's not a big appetite in Congress and even in most state governments for doing something about patent protection, about doing something that would really fundamentally change the system and make it make it a less profitable, profit-driven system. But you see these kind of smaller changes that are trying to deal with, you know, loopholes and egregious abuses. Yeah, I, mean, I think your point about the R&D drug pricing trade-off is interesting, but we have seen a decent amount of research that sort of shows, you know, drug companies aren't spending 80, 90 percent of their profits on R&D. A lot of times they actually spend more on advertising or other things that are not like the, the development of new drugs. So it's hard to know how much you could push down prices and how much that would actually lead to a change in the new products we get. I mean, that's kind of what sometimes I think is used as the scare tactic, what really freaks people out. But it's just 
there's not a lot of clarity that actually drugs are priced based on how much companies even spend on R&D. So if that's not how they're priced, if you push it down, does that really change? And also we have a system in the U.S. where the government does support a decent amount of drug R&D and really gets a lot of products to where they're at a level where companies can take it over. How about the states? I know there's been initiatives in Washington State, New Mexico, New York, California, anything catch your eye that you think is something that is actually working as some of these problems we're talking about? I think, unfortunately, at the state level, there's a bit more interest and willingness for some of the legislatures to take up the idea than on the federal level, but they have a lot less levers than the federal government does. Sure. And if And even some of the levers they seem to think they have are now being challenged in court. So Maryland passed a law that would try and stop price gouging of older off-patent and generic drugs. And now the generic drug lobby is suing them and saying this is actually an authority that is left to the federal government because you're you're trying to regulate interstate commerce. And actually, um, a number of years back, D.C., Washington, D.C., actually tried to pass a law around drug pricing that was challenged by the brand drug industry and got struck down on the similar idea that this is a power left to the federal government and states can't regulate it. And I think that's what we're seeing with a lot of the action around states this far is like they just have very limited ability to regulate a national, international industry. We saw an interesting uh, situation in New York. They passed some legislation. It didn't go as far as the governor originally wanted, but but one piece of this is sort of like New York wants its money back or else kind of thing. It's in the Medicaid program, so they've set a spending cap in Medicaid. And if it looks like they're going to exceed that cap, and they probably will because in years past they have exceeded this this formula, they would be able to pick out some products and say, you know, we want to study these a little more closely. We want to look at their cost effectiveness and how well do they work compared with how much they cost. And no drug maker wants to go through that. So this is a way to sort of get them to come to the table and offer additional rebates because they won't send them for this additional review if they agree to some additional rebates in the Medicaid program. So it's sort of a way to try to force them to come to the table. But it's unclear which drugs they're going to pick or how they're going to do this. And and there may be legal challenges to that idea as well. So that's a brand new thing that just started. But but that's an example of where the states do have a little bit of control because they have some say over their Medicaid program. But we'll have to see how that plays out. All right. We're going to wrap things up with a segment that we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story that they read recently and they think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you missed these. We'll post all these links to the pieces on the Kaiser Health News website, khn.org. I'm going to start first, since I have the microphone. Uh, mine is a story from my KHN colleague, Jonah Alicia, who analyzed federal data and discovered that last year, the first year that healthcare providers were allowed to bill for advanced care planning or end-of-life discussions, nearly 575,000 Medicare beneficiaries took part in these conversations. That was double what the American Medical Association predicted. And we have to remember back when health reform started in 2009, These were incorrectly called the death panels. This is what this is, these conversations. They're part of the law. Beneficiaries are taking part in them. Physicians are. And that program is moving forward. So, Margo, what's your extra credit assignment? So I wanted to draw attention to a body of work uh, by a journalist at Bloomberg named Hannah Racht, who has been doing this incredibly painstaking work of putting together insurance filings so we can see real-time updates on how many carriers there are in different markets. We were talking about Bear Counties earlier. Uh, 
there really is not a great, reliable source of this information. Uh, the federal government has been publishing uh, its own maps, but they are full of errors. And she is just doing yeoman's work, reading these state insurance filings and giving us a really up-to-date picture and also giving us really beautiful and useful visualizations of the data. So I really recommend following along. Julie? Well, this comes back to what we were just talking about, what the market will bear and cost. And it was a story yesterday's Wall Street Journal by Denise Rowland. And it was about Novo Nordisk and insulin. Now, insulin has been improved over the years. There's quite a number of competing products out there. Novo Nordisk is one of the companies that makes insulin. They have just created a new one that they say is more convenient, has fewer side effects, and is just better. And they thought that they could come out and get 60 to 70 percent higher price than their previous insulin. Um, that didn't work out quite so well. Many companies, countries in Europe balked at that price. And here in the United States, they also ran up against opposition with some of the big pharmacy benefit managers. So in a sense, they only got like 10 percent higher amount. So this is just a very interesting look at what will the market bear. Sarah, what's yours? So my story was um, a Gina Colada story in the New York Times about how there were all these cancer drug trials and not enough patients for it, which I just immediately gravitated to because I've been looking at Right to Try and all these patients saying we're clamoring for experimental drugs. And yet here you have this story saying their drug companies can't find enough people so they can actually test their experimental drugs. And the reasons are kind of interesting. Sometimes it's because they're looking for people with such specific mutations. One of the problems is you can really often only be in clinical trials if you're being treated at an academic medical center. So that can sometimes hurt people in more rural areas or of the country or just not near um, a center that's doing that. Um, another interesting reason was it seems like sometimes there's too many companies trying to develop very similar drugs, and that sort of you know separates the population and you know creates competing things that may not aren't not best for just kind of getting everybody in one trial. So it was a pretty interesting read. Great. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. If you have comments, you can email us at whatthehealth at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Mary Agnes Carey. I'm at Sanger Katz. I'm at Julie underscore Appleby. I'm at Sarah Carlin. And if you'd like to hear more about prescription drug prices, join our Facebook Live conversation on Tuesday, August 29th at noon Eastern. If you'd like to submit a question ahead of time, please do so at our website, khn.org. Just click on the Contact Us tab at the top of the page. We'll be back in your feed soon, and in the meantime, be healthy.